Welcome to Model Rail Radio. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live on Skype, December 2nd, 2017. Model Rail Radio is the internet's only live recorded radio show where the topic is the hobby of model railroading. Well, we have on John Garrity. It's been an extraordinarily long length of time, I think, since I had the opportunity to chat with you, John. What's been going on in the hobby in your part of Australia? The big October model railway exhibition has been and gone. This one's based out at Liverpool, just west of Sydney. Uh, and it's put on by one of the local model railway clubs and it's their main source of revenue here. So um, all types of stuff there in all types of gauges and combinations. In terms of the size of this particular show, how big is it? Two basketball courts plus two additional rooms. Interesting. So probably uh, enough in the extra rooms to make up for another basketball court. Wonderful. So did you see anything exciting, anything interesting, anything that uh, piqued your interest? My problem is my interests are uh, pretty specific. Yes. So, yes, there was a lot of interesting stuff there. Uh, Some of it was very, very interesting, but it's in a scale that I'm not working in. (laughs) or it's on a topic that I'm not actively modelling, if certainly, you know what I mean. Certainly. But within, within so, that scheme, given the fact that, yes, you have very particular, you know, you have very particular interests in the hobby, what kind of stuff did you see that was interesting that might interest the broader listenership? Anything that's worth reporting on Model Rail Radio about? Um, yes, the 7mm Australian uh, has now got a lot more in it than it has had for a while. They've got a 59-class New South Wales Government Railways Ooh, just released. Very nice. So for those who aren't aware of what a New South Wales Government Railway 59 <laughs> is, they were built by Baldwin Lima Hamilton. Mm. They were the export light Mercado uh, in standard gauge. Now, most of the US ones ran with longer tenders. Yes. Unfortunately, New South Wales Government Railways has a lot of 60-foot turntables. So they had to wait for new shorter tenders to be made before they could be exported after the war. So mm. they arrived out in Australia in the early 50s, uh, just in time for the start of the diesels to arrive. <laughs> yes. The other thing that's been out there for probably the last 18 months is an AD60 Garrett in 7 mil to the foot. Hmm. So for those who aren't aware of what a Garrett is, it's a 484 plus 484 wheel arrangement, uh, which is probably just as many wheels under it as the big boy. Certainly. It, it tips the scale at round about 250 tonne when it's fully loaded, mm. and it's the largest lump of anything moving on rails in the Southern Hemisphere. Certainly. So the arrangement is basically a water tank, supported on a front 484 engine unit and a coal bunker and additional water tank supported on another 484 engine unit and slung between them is a rather big uh, boiler unit. So these things um, were the big boy of of Australian railways. Certainly. Um, There's one still in Canberra as well, isn't there? There was one in Canberra that was still operating. I'm not sure uh, what happened to that one. But yes, yeah. The Canberra Museum has had some issues. 
at Certainly. present that loco's in storage at New South Wales Rail Heritage at Thirlmere. Mm. So it's no longer on the Canberra site. Alas. And it's no longer out actively earning for the Canberra organisation. Uh, I actually got to ride behind it when it came to Wollongong shortly before the issues that shut down Canberra shut down Canberra. Mm. So not sure what's happening there. I haven't been keeping a close eye on on what's been going on. Hopefully Canberra will get up and away Let's um, <laughs> with some limited rail operations based out of Canberra. Yes. Uh, so that's the 7 mil on the HO side. There is still stuff being done in HO for uh, early esteem that hasn't been done previously. Mm-hmm. So that always tends to surface for the Liverpool show. There's also a lot of modern image diesels being done now mm. uh, in HO. These are equivalent to uh, the GE AC series 4400s and, and similar, but Australian railway clearances were a lot tighter than US. Certainly. So think of a GE AC 4400 and shoehorn it into something that's at least three feet narrower and four feet lower. And that's what the, the local railway like uh, loco manufacturers have done. And they're out there, they're earning money, and, and they're pretty reliable. Certainly. Um, on the EMD side, uh, they've done something similar uh, with some of the lo- latest locomotives now also being available in HO as well. Yes. So they're the equivalent of things like an SD70. Um, again, it's been kind of hit with a slight shrink ray. <laughs> the the Aus- Australian cab arrangement is different than the US. So you won't see things like the safety cab with the nose out the front on an Australian locomotive. Yes. Um, they're built to using a different design philosophy for how the structure works. Certainly. Certainly. Uh, N-scale, it's surprising now just how much N-scale is available for Australian outline stuff. Mm. Um, When I got started in N-scale back in the late 70s, early 80s, (laughs) it was a case of take something from overseas, give it a paint job, close one eye, and yes, it looked like something Australian as it rolled past. (laughs) Yes. Um, for an example, my 45 class that I did up was basically a very, very cheap and nasty RSD 18, I think it was. It had the corners filled in on, on the hood. There was, I think, 45 degree corners. Mm. Uh, they were kind of bulked out to basically a flush, uh, end. Mm-hmm. Uh, give it a coat of paint, a set of decals, and hey, presto, it turned into a New South Wales 45 <laughs> class. Yes. Uh, don't put a scale ruler anywhere near no. it. No. <laughs> uh, these days, what they've got is accurate chassis that are dimensionally correct. It's amazing, actually, seeing it, because, as you say, the getting the prototype right in N-scale, I mean, even in this country, we might have Joe D'Amato calling in later in the show, but the people that do N-Scale are just so detail-oriented, and it's so beautiful now to see Australian locomotives with that level of detail. Anyway, continue. Sorry, I interrupted you. Okay, well, the N-Scale 
at present uh, released by one of the local manufacturers here uh, is a 280 mm-hmm. um, standard goods unit. So it's a consolidation, um, English-looking boiler with the big central dome. That New South Wales locos traditionally had the sandboxes down on the running boards and not up on top of the boilers like US units. Mm-hmm. So this thing has got the big central steam dome, um, bell pair firebox, uh, and an Australian bogey tender out behind it mm. uh, in N-scale. Mm. Uh, it looks very, very impressive. Yes. Uh, the same guy who has done that has also done 48-class locomotives in N-scale. Mm. Now, for those of you who don't know what a 48-class is, it's an Alco, uh, I think it's a DL510 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a short hood with a long, uh, with the loco cab, then a long hood. It's got the Alco 255 motor in it with a turbo, and when it loads up, there's enough turbo lag for the thing to look like an active steam loco. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, these things at, well, they first came into service in the late 1950s. In the late 2010s going 20s, they're still out there earning money. Mm. They're an 060 wheel arrangement but a very very short wheel arrangement so if you think of an alco four-wheel switcher in us speak yes shorten the fuel tank and get an extra set of wheels on each bogey (laughs) yes and all the wheels on the prototype have got traction motors on them so they're not cheating with dodging the bogey pivot yes these things at about 850 horsepower or 900 horsepower with the modes of all work um for around the New South Wales network. They did a similar version for South Australia. They also got down into Tasmania. So basically they're a design of loco that could be modelled almost anywhere in Australia, Uh, even more so now that they've got the standard gauge network right across to Perth. Certainly, yes. I haven't heard any any tales of 48s working over in WA, but I wouldn't be surprised if they had. <laughs> yes. So they've been a very, very useful loco for a, a very, very long time, and they're still out there. There were three v- different versions of them that were built. The firm that made them is no longer in existence, uh, but the spare parts are still readily available. Mm. Was New South Wales had 200 and something of them. Uh, certainly South Australia had a significant fleet of them as well. Uh, there were some private outfits that also had them. Uh, the Silverton Tramway had a fleet of about five of them. Mm. So, again, they've been... But this whole loco is is probably about three inches long at best. Mm. It gives you a, a, a size of how small this loco is. Gosh. Uh, fully detailed, handrails, you name it. It's, it's all there. So if anyone wants to look up what a 48 is, <laughs> dial up the Badger Bits... The, the Badger Bits website. Yes. Uh, it's run by a bloke by the name of Phil Badger, who mm-hmm. has built in, in the past. Remember those Garrets I was talking about? Yes, yes. In N scale. Yes. Uh, if you think about getting a 484 plus 484 mechanism <laughs> that will run reliably on N scale. Amazing. 
and then having a detailed body on top of it. This guy's about as good as this guy's about as good as they get. Yes, yes, yeah. For the longest time, Shape Boys had N scale garrets, but again, the underlying mechs that you had to use were. I can't remember, but yeah, you'd, you'd have to use Kato or something like that with some reliability. So to get that all uh, working together, amazing, amazing. Yeah, a lot of the mechs came out of Japan. They were either Tomix, Micro Ace, Kato or similar. Certainly, yes. Um, I will admit, any of those Japanese uh, brands makes a very, very reliable mech. Without question. Um, and the actual Japanese models are... are up there with the best as well. Certainly, certainly. Uh, there was the usual big Lego type <laughs> layout. Yes. Uh, for those who have never heard of an underground model being modelled, yes, there was a model of Museum Station on the Sydney Underground Network. Wonderful, wonderful. So it uh, works as though one side of the tunnel's been opened up. Mm-hmm. So you've got a train enters from a basically a tunnel stage left, pulls up at the platform, then disappears into a tunnel exiting stage right. Certainly, yes. But the uh, It's a model of the museum station in Sydney on the Sydney Underground. Certainly. That particular station has been done up um, in a very, very Art Deco style. Certainly, yes. So this particular model is as the station is with the fancy tiling and what have you. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, that was one. There was uh, a very, very interesting uh, LGB size logging layout mm. that was there as well. It was very, very detailed. Wonderful. Um, they're the, the, the kind of... Uh, on outside, there was also a big rails-in-the-garden type layout running on an elevated layout. Wonderful. Um, live steam radio control. It was basically, I think, two, maybe it was either two or four ovals mm. with some loops off it where they could kind of, as things ran out of puff, they'd be gradually fed into the siding <laughs> before they... Before they died, or, yes. Or, or, or given a gentle nudge home. Very good, very good. So there is a surprising amount of interest in that area coming into some of the model engineering societies uh there are at least three layouts i know reasonably close to me Mm -hmm. where the model engineering clubs have put in uh 32 and 5 uh 45 mil gauge tracks wonderful wonderful uh so that's led to a a, a rise in interest of things like radio controlled live steam Mm -hmm. uh running on 45 mil tracks I think it's the kind of aspect of the hobby, particularly because as people get older, obviously, they have more income, but they're also looking for larger scales. And it's one of these things where there was a there was a definite dip in that aspect of the hobby. And I think certainly slowly but surely, and obviously we've got folks in the UK that call in on a, a periodic basis that are in amongst that stuff as well. But the aesthetic and also the... What's the term? The smell, for want of a better term. The whole aspect of that is just such a beautiful part of the hobby. I was in a train store in Pennsylvania on my road trip, and they had a variety of different smokes that you could add to electric locomotives in a larger scale. 
but it was interesting the different grades of coal and the other things that you could actually like flavor drop the smokes into these locomotives uh Mm, it sounds wonderful, John Garrity. I'm very mindful of this because I'm heading back to Australia. My cousin is getting married in Adelaide in March. So I'll be back in Sydney at least uh, for at least a couple of days on either parts of the legs because I'm also going to Auckland as well. So I'll certainly get in contact with you and the professor and see if we can have one of our days together in my trip because certainly it's always good catching up with you and it's always good catching up with the professor. I... I haven't heard from him recently. I hope his general move has, has, you know, calmed down a little bit. Do you have any update from the professor that you can give? Uh, it's still in progress, but mm-hmm. it's almost done. Wonderful, wonderful. They're in their house now, so all the the hard um, industrial remodelling has been done. Wonderful. So that's they're still detailing stuff that they're finishing up. So. He's still got a bit of work in, in front of him, but, uh, yes, Annie's family and his family are, are both arriving for Christmas dinners. So, <laughs> Very cool. so there, is a, there, there is a hard deadline. <laughs> Most definitely. Most definitely. Well, please pass up my regards to the professor, and uh, yeah, hopefully I'll be able to catch up with you both in March. I'm certainly, because I'm spending time in South Australia, spending time with Jim Gifford and his crew uh, as well but it'd be wonderful to catch up with you and the professor and i don't know i mean we manly tends to be the easiest way to do these things uh but we'll see how we're placed i know my wife has a, a bunch of stuff that she wants to do so it's always good to have a, a model rail radio day thrown in there so i can catch up with you folk um, but please pass my regards to the professor and uh for you and for yours uh happy christmas and have a, a great new year if we don't have a chance to chat before then okay thanks tom I'd like to welcome back on Jamie Fenton. Jamie, when we last spoke, you had turned your layout around. You'd seen a different face of the layout, but you were also contemplating potentially a move and a variety of other things. What's your model railroading update? Okay, well, it's the we're, we haven't moved. Uh, not work, still not working. The railroad has changed a little bit. Jennifer, of course, has been improving the scenery and is at the moment working on a, a wrecker you know, big hook type <laughs> model. Most recent thing I did is I installed the uh, Digitrax LNWI, which is uh, a interface to uh, let, let you plug it in and it gives you Wi-Fi uh, One. control yep. to the um, of your Digitrax layout without having to do what I did before, which is have a whole laptop dedicated to it. So That's it makes cool. it a lot simpler for Jennifer to troubleshoot if I'm not around, <laughs> that kind of thing. So that's about it for us. Not so a lot changing here. In Go terms ahead. of the wrecking ball facility, where is that going in on the layout? I've got a few kind of footprint points where it could go, but where's it actually going? I actually asked Jennifer that yesterday, and she didn't have an answer, <laughs> although... <laughs> Very good. There, there's a couple of them. You know, there, there's, a, there's a little spur off the, the that's off the main, just past the entrance to the yard, that's probably going to be it, because <laughs> it's kind of like where stuff, uh, where stuff goes and um, uh, parks anyway. Yeah, one of the other things I did is I... Uh, Send a proposal to Model Railroad to write an article about it, but I've not heard back yet, so I don't know. I, I think it typically takes six years before you. I mean, any correspondence. 
I think what they typically like is to, for people to send fully formed articles and then wait the six years and then get it edited and what have you. I've okay. never, I've never heard people actually getting a correspondence in anything close to real time from Model Railroader. So. I see. So it might take a couple of months, if ever, because their contributor page recommends an inquiry before you start writing an article. Well, that's really That's what they did. (laughs) So it's following instructions, but uh, we'll see if they ever get back to me. But it would be, I think it would be fun to to document this a little bit better because it's such a great railroad in such a small space, as you know. (laughs) Certainly. Is mm-hmm. it actually based on? Is it based on a um, what would the term be? A pedigree layout? Is it based on a model railroad layout? Yes, it is. It's based on Plan Number Forty from the Lynn Westcott book, One Hundred and One Model Railroad Plans. Um, I'm not quoting the, <laughs> the title accurately, but mm-hmm. it's a, a a real classic and um, uh, railroad railroad design. It's actually if you go start at the front of the book and you look for a uh, railroad that has conventional curves and uh, number six switches and 2% grades. It's like the first one you find. Certainly. certainly. <laughs> so it's probably, it's probably had other people make it too, but it, and it really works out well in N scale because the HO version has this pit control pit you're supposed to use. And you don't even need it. And so you can put a big town like we did. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yep. Yes. It is interesting. The pedigree of these layouts. I look at layouts occasionally on eBay where people are selling their layouts and oftentimes it fits into exactly the same or a similar prototypical style. And certainly, I think for the space, it is just a wonderful use of space. But the digitization aspect as well is something that I think, you know, Model Railroad should at least be publishing more of these kind of articles as it goes mm-hmm. on. So, yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. We have, as it just so happens... Malcolm Johnson calling in. So let's see. I'd like to welcome back on Malcolm Johnson. Malcolm, we have Jamie Fenton on the line. I've been trying to get you two together to share notes and exchange layout ideas. And fortuitously, I was just chatting with Jamie before you called in. Um, in terms of your layout, what stage is it at currently? Basically, I have wiped out my layout. Um, so it's, it's basically down to uh, boards and, and track. Mm-hmm. And I've gone through and tried to, uh, you know, really work through the track layout kind of planning. And that seems to be working out really well for me right now because I actually have my freight and my high-speed rail stuff going at the same time now. So I can run my freight around in a loop and my high-speed rail in a loop instead of a point-to-point exclusively. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's that part's fantastic. But now I'm into the state where um, – it's kind of horrible because I want to get back to that uh, time where I could actually put buildings on and start working on my scenes and things, but mm. a lot more work to do before I get to that point. And the thing that I always thought you and Jamie should tag team on, particularly in terms of ideas, is obviously you have a very particular scenery and perspective view, but Jamie has digitized her layout, basically, and now has a... a Digitrack controller system versus JMRI. But in terms of your layout, is this something that you want eventually to have, you know, wireless control over and this kind of stuff? Or are you still getting back into the scenery aspects and these kind of things? I think it's more the scenery for me. I think uh, DCC would have made this whole process a lot easier. Mm -hmm. But the way I have it worked out right now, it is actually kind of a fun little puzzle because 
you have you know in order to get things to run a certain way you have to have certain switches on and off and and things like that so i like that aspect of it and it's working for me so i think for now i'm going to stick with the straight dc and then just go for uh scenery elements certainly that's my certainly. my big thing right now well as we move closer and closer to show 150 i think the likelihood of uh you both potentially if you're amenable to this idea to open up your layouts and let you know visitors come and see them that was certainly very useful in show 100 to go and see both your layouts and i think the aspects that you both share in terms of you know particular obsessive interests they're different interests but the particular <laughs> obsessive interest is always really fascinates me and uh, you're a bridge and a bit of a schlep away from one another but i think somehow we've got to get e- both of you on each other's layouts at some stage just to, uh, if nothing more, to compare notes associated for with sure. being in relatively close proximity. For sure, I've heard a couple of uh, a couple of shows where you've mentioned it. Uh, Hello, Jamie. By the way, <laughs> um, where uh, yeah, I've been I've been saying it's like yeah, I really have to get over to see the layout and have them over to see mine, and it's just one of those things where you know, especially with the holidays. You know, no question. It's up. the wrong time of year. But yeah, I think yeah. <laughs> um, these these large number shows tend to be a forcing function to actually get us all out. I mean, truth be That's told, true. I could be a facilitator as well. But yeah, it's just unfortunately the nature of the Greater Bay Area that you can be relatively close proximity, but still <laughs> do the, uh, the, the distance necessary. So in terms of your layout, Malcolm, you have mm-hmm. functioning track, you've got locomotives running, and now... Is it a matter of, I mean, when you took your layout apart, did you capture the individual scenery elements? Are they all boxed up somewhere? Will they reappear in some form? How's this going to go back together? Yeah, so when I when I uh, did it initially, you know, we had had our conversation, and I finally talked myself into doing it, poured myself a very large whiskey, and just started tearing stuff down. And so I took all the buildings off and, and boxed them up according to area, made sure I labeled them and everything. Um, I took as many of the um, the scenes, the scratch built scenes that I had made uh, apart very carefully and boxed those up as well. And then everything else just kind of went large groups of scenery, you know, bushes and, and things of that nature just kind of came off. So I do have those elements. They're all ready to go back on. The interesting part now is that with the additional track that I put on and additional kind of planning that I've done, I'm not 100 percent sure they're all going to make it <laughs> back on. But I know that we've had a discussion where I, I really wanted to get that kind of crowded look to the uh, to the area, a little more dense Certainly. kind yeah. of kind of look. And so maybe this will facilitate that. Whereas, you know, in order to get things back on, I'll need to not be so delicate about where I'm putting things, kind of cram them in and and make a little more, uh, you know, a tighter kind of situation there. So I think that'll work out. But that's what I'm kind of. In that mode, you know, basically what I have to do now is I have to uh, do a lot of plastering mm-hmm. of areas right now, <laughs> which yes. I, I'm all set to go. I could just do it, but it's just it's hard to to kind of dive in on that. Um, I'm doing the uh, I got a large bag of plaster and mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of paper towels. And I'm going to go the paper towel route and try that out because I haven't done that yet. Uh, it's going to be a lot cheaper than the than the plaster. plaster goes. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah, that's. I, I was looking at doing the math on that. It's just like, wow, it's going to be a lot of money for that. And I'd rather spend that on trains. Uh, it is interesting, actually, the many different ways of doing, creating. I mean, what you're looking for here 
because most of the surfaces that you put your scenery onto are flat, but you're looking to accent with certain hills and these kind of things, right? That's the plan. That's the plan. I, I have my, uh, my temple hill, which is going to be the largest kind of hill area mm. in my layout. But then I've raised my track up as well. So the track is actually kind of, it, I have to play around with it. I'm trying to get some, some prototype visuals to help me out. But I've, I've raised the track up. Um, it's probably about two inches mm-hmm. in certain, certain parts. And so that's going to be, uh, it's going to provide some, you know, the bridges that I've wanted and some of the underpasses and things of that nature. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where it's going to be a lot of plastering to, to get that to work correctly. And I'm going to start with Temple Hill because that's, uh, you know, once I get that in place, I can kind of start, you know, scenicing that, you know, as it goes. And then I'll go and just take sections of track off and plaster those. But I want to make sure that everything was working the way I wanted it to before I, I dove in on that. And I kind of got into a little al- analysis paralysis, as mm-hmm. uh, as Chris used to say, where, you know, I was like, well, is this really what I want? Is this really working well? And even today, I went down there and, and played around for a half hour, and I almost raised all of Soyokaze up uh, about three inches to, to kind of match the hill. And then I was like, well, wait, no, I wanted this temple hill to be a big hill so, where this temple yeah. is. So if it's all the same level, it's going to take away that effect. So I, I scrubbed that whole thing, but I really need to just lock it down and just move forward because I have a lot of little things that I want to get in, including this kind of crazy elevator system in my harbor area to uh, take trucks up to where they can be um, lo- un- unloaded for uh, the you know the, my freight area in that section. So there's a lot of these little cool scenes that I want to work on, but I can't do any of that before I. I get this plaster stuff down. Alas, alas. Alas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was speaking to my father who live, has lived in Hong Kong for the past six years. Mm-hmm. And in the process of moving, he's coming back to Australia. He went back and his wife had moved into a small apartment while they moved out. But it was in a mixed-use industry neighborhood. So he was surrounded by these tiny little shops, which are exactly the same. Well, I mean, they're not exactly the same, but it's the same kind of concept that you're looking uh-huh. to model in certain areas of your layout as well. Where right. you have these single-person shops that are very specialized, associated with electronics or motorcycle repair or you right. know, <laughs> all these different possibilities here. Um, beautifully done. And my father said he was going to take lots of photographs because I just love these little areas these little industrial areas that are also have people you know living a story above and all this <laughs> other kind of stuff so i'm looking forward to you getting back into the modeling but i understand the nature of what you're doing in terms of getting the geography right first so looking forward to seeing updates thank you yeah i'm, I'm super excited i think it's you know in the long run it's going to be fantastic it's just a matter of getting things to that state again and i posted on uh, the model rail page that mm-hmm. I, I discovered this, this series of photos I had taken back in uh, 2014 of the layout. And, you know, you see bare uh, decking and, and <laughs> I hadn't done a lot of parts yet. And I was like, well, that was just a mirror, you know, three years ago. So yes. in theory, I, you know, I can build it back up again. So I just have to, to get to that point again. So we have a question from the chat from John Garrity. He's asking specifically, how are you planning on doing the truck lift? It's this crazy, 
crazy thing that I found. What was it? It was, I think it's called a funicular. Mm. There's like this, because um, I was thinking, you know, when I did this uh, initially, I have my harbor area down below at water level. But then the track, because I had raised it up at this level, I really liked it. It kind of runs along behind uh, the Temple Hill area. But it was so much higher than the the um, harbor area that I couldn't figure out how to to actually have it work. I didn't want to raise you know the harbor up because that wouldn't make sense. And so I was going back and forth on it. And then I was like, well, what about an elevator? Some kind of elevator system. And I said, well, you know, an elevator that big, it probably wouldn't work out. And yeah, you know, I, I was I couldn't find any prototype, you know, prototypical kind of ways to do that. But then I found this crazy thing. Where is it? I can't remember where it is now. It's, I think it's Germany or mm-hmm. or something where it can lift a bus up this huge hill, like a tour bus. Certainly. Um, it's that big. And I said, well, if it can lift a bus that far, then it would have no problem with, you know, a series of trucks or, or these Certainly. kind of, uh, you know, kind of loading items. So, so John Garrity, John Garrity wants to just chime in here. I think he has some yeah. ideas. John? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, hi, uh, Malcolm. Hi there. Uh, the, that one in Germany I hadn't heard of. If you get a chance, pull a YouTube shoot, uh, search on the Vivian Incline. Vivian Incline. In, in Wales. Right. So what it is, it's actually an incline plane. So they were kind of lowering full wagons down and taking the empties back up and gravity was doing the work for them. Huh. It, for your truck, basically what you'd have is the same type of a setup, but instead of getting gravity to do the work for it, you'd have an electric motor and a big gearbox driving right. the drum. So yes. the, the, the way it works, one, if, if you can imagine a continuous rope coiled around a drum, mm-hmm. One side comes off, well, one end comes off high, the other end comes off low. Now, as you turn the drum, you feed one side out and wind the other one in. I got gotcha. you. That makes sense. Right. Right. So it, it's pretty easy to do in miniature for this type of an inclined plane. So what you've got is a flat deck. Under the flat deck is an angled frame with railway wheels attached. Mm-hmm. So that's on one track. On the next track beside it, you've got the same type of a deal. But when one car is down the bottom of the hill, the other one's at the top of the hill. Oh, I got you. That makes sense. Right. So what you do, you and it, it, it's reasonably easy to do with some pretty basic switching gear, mm-hmm. is run one out until it gets to the other end and, and bumps into something which trips a limit switch and says, stop here. Because when you stop at the bottom, you stop the top at the right spot. Ah, uh, huh. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about having this actually work. <laughs> hey, why not? I know. But yeah, now that you're saying that, it's like, well, that could be interesting. Be a yeah. fun little thing. The thing you can't do is get the cars on and off for you. Right. Huh. And having seen what they're up to in, in radio control HO these days. <laughs> well, there or you a fallot. Or a fallow system where the road actually stops on the on the deck of the the wagon. Huh. Oh, I see. I see. Huh. So, um, it might be possible to have this thing actually work with working wagon uh, with working vehicles. That would be a lot of fun. Now that that's a tall ask, but 
right. there's a fair bit of research to get that one to work. Yeah, but no doubt. To, to swap the inclined plane wagons from one end of the layout to the other is pretty basic. Mm-hmm. I think what I'd probably do is I'd start out with a, like a more static thing. Yep. And then, you know, you know, have that as one of my like uh, projects in planning kind of thing. Whereas like when I get everything kind of going, then I can revisit it and get something like a working model going. I think that would be awesome. Okay. Well, all you need basically is if you have a look at the Vivian incline, have a look at how those cars are put together. Uh, you'll see it as it, as it comes off. Now, the way it works is at the bottom, when the, the car with the flat deck arrives, it actually sinks into a pit, which allows the flat deck to be surfaced with the, or level with the, the roll-off surface. Uh, oh, yeah, I see. Huh. Right. At the top end, when you arrive, the level of the deck it matches up with the level of the roll-off surface up there. Interesting. So, so what you've got is basically an inclined set of, of or two sets of tracks. Now, the, the beauty of the two sets of tracks is you can move twice the amount of traffic. Right. Yeah, that's true. Uh, huh. Because you, you, you get to load each track each way. That's a pretty nifty little setup. I like that. Thought you'd be impressed. Yeah. And if you space the, the, the tracks out a little bit so that you've got room for a vehicle to come off, you, you feed them on one, one way onto the onto the deck and you drive them out the middle of the, the deck at the top. Huh. So you, you load from the sides at, on a, at, at each end and you drive out down the middle. Right. I have to say but this that, is that, much more interesting than, than – I mean, I like the, the thing that I had found as well, but as far as a an actual working kind of system, this makes a lot of sense and it would be kind of fun to do. And huh. the, there's some easy ways to get the ropes to behave themselves – as well so if you get a piece of uh, machine bar with a thread cut in it you can pick them up from the local hardware stores at various threads if you mm-hmm. get a very very fine thread as you rotate the the um the drum or the this machine thread it, it actually organizes the rope to come onto the uh, uh onto the the thread as it feeds out the other way right yeah, it's it's such a small space that I'm dealing with. You know, I, I don't think that would be a huge problem. But right, huh? So, how how big a lift are you planning? It's it's small. It's like, you know, as far as are you talking about as far as the uh, uh, vertical height and horizontal sideways? Oh, geez, it's it's only. I wish I was down there right now. I'm I'm upstairs right now, but no worries. Uh, it's probably like it's only two inches and it's end scale, so it's. It's really not that big a, an area. Okay, um, so using a couple of pieces of, of set track, you can lay your foundations very, very accurately for where the, the, the inclined plane vehicles run on. Mm-hmm. And, and you can use, if you use standard N-scale track for that, you can use standard N-scale wagon chassis as the basis for what's doing the rolling. Right. Huh. That would be there. pretty neat. <laughs> there you go. It's a whole like <laughs> it's a whole another thing, but I, I kind of dig it. I think that would be very cool. Okay. Huh. Again, no no urgency, and we expect to hear back from you next next call. <laughs> next month. <laughs> <laughs> on, on on that note, now I've created enough havoc. I'm going back to look. <laughs> 
that's pretty good, like, John Garrity. Pretty cool. Four months of uh, a project there. <laughs> yeah, that's great though. That's very cool. John Garrity's good for that. He's good for creating additional work. <laughs> well known for this particular phenomena. Right. <laughs> so, Malcolm, as we have some leisurely time to wrap, I wanted to talk a little bit about the road trip that I just undertook oh, and yeah. the amazing diversity of landscapes. And I was talking to Ron Kleiss. I actually met Ron Kleiss in New Jersey. And I was chatting with him about how the mobile home, the actual individual single-wide mobile home, is the definitive piece of structure over a majority of the U.S., uh-huh. everywhere we went was just scattered with these mobile homes. Uh, sometimes mobile, sometimes long since mobile, but right. certainly every possible train track and every possible you know mountain range and these kind of things, you'd come into valleys and there would just be one, two, four, six, eight of these things scattered along the sides of the, the train tracks. And... Uh-huh. With in various degrees of disrepair, various <laughs> degrees of like mold stippling and various other things for to be prototypical, but I ended up at Nicholas Smith trains uh, just outside of Philadelphia and uh, just outside of Westchester, in fact, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and I realised that there were very few of these mobile homes available in both HO and O scale, mm-hmm. and Ron as many in the hobby have have done is considering buying a laser cutter and i said right. if you were going to do any kind of structure i mean i would use it as well for wargaming as well i have a friend actually in pittsburgh has a wargaming set of rules uh based on um mobile homes and also containers so i thought well this is an interesting like missing part of a hobby that Actually, if you're modeling contemporary stuff, and I think probably even back into the 70s, certainly my love of period movies set in the 70s in various parts of the US seem to have a, <laughs> an inexhaustible <laughs> supply of mobile homes in them as well. But right. actually, what you find is, I mean, through, for, let's take Wyoming, for example. Um, through Wyoming, all the towns that you encounter uh, a majority of them are mobile homes that are huh. just kind of set up in, in various configurations. And I think this mode of housing, while not being historically romantic, although, again, if you look at films, quite romantically covered in films, is just so prototypically required for modeling a majority of the US that I find it astonishing that there are not better offerings uh, in this area. And I think when you think of contemporary you know, modelers, particularly high-detailed contemporary modelers, there seems to be something that's actually missing. However, let's talk about some other aspects of the trip other than the mobile home part of it. <laughs> um, amazing, amazing to finally see West Virginia. I mean, West Virginia and Kentucky, but mainly West Virginia for me, was just so completely eye-opening. The aesthetic, the smell, the colours of the leaves, and we were told by all the locals that we were a week too late. And most of the countries had shed by this point. But um, we're planning an an East Coast Odyssey next year. And some of that will no doubt be touching on some of these areas. But uh, yeah, it was just an amazing road trip. The change of scenery, I've done it a few times via Amtrak. But to do it on the road and also to just really appreciate a phenomenon that I encountered, which I'll put out there, particularly to our US listeners, that 
geographical distinctions between the states is very pronounced. And we found moving between states that they looked very different. And then they were the same for the length of the state. And then they changed again at the boundaries of the states. So I started to wonder if the boundaries of the states and the geographic changes. I mean, if you look at, for example, Utah into Wyoming, Utah is completely different than Wyoming. And then Utah into Nevada, again, completely different to Nevada. The right. actual scenery seems to, you know, within 30 minutes either side of the border changes distinctly. And this was something that I found really fascinating because you don't really get a sense of that. You get a sense of transitions and these kind of things, but there seem to be really quite distinct boundaries in terms of the kinds of foliage and also the mountains and these kind of things. So there's this flat land. And, uh, yeah, it was really very fascinating in terms of just, I guess, reconnecting myself with this thing associated with scenery, which is just so critically important in the hobby, particularly for, you know, folks that are, you know, modeling, you know, various rural areas and these kind of things. And I right. had prepared myself for West Virginia a little bit, but nothing really prepared me for actually being there. And it's an area that I think the rail history of this area is in, in West Virginia changes north, south, east, west. We didn't get to Virginia this trip. We did get into New Jersey, or I did at least, and uh, we did do some state hopping on the east coast a little bit. But also, my wife has a great love for Kansas. I quite enjoy Kansas as well. We went to Des Moines, Iowa, and I'm really kicking myself that I didn't look up Jason Reese going through Des Moines because it is such an interesting city in the middle of you know, in the middle of <laughs> Iowa. And it was just it caught me by surprise that this is really a a very mature and functioning and developed and well thought out city in an area where, you know, you can go for hours. And you, don't see it, you know, oh, yeah. you go through hours in the cornfields, basically. So, yeah, it was a wonderful trip. And it reconnected me with the, the countryside. It reconnected me with a lot of people. Um, it was vastly too fast. I mean, the nature of crossing the country in seven days, crossing the country back in seven days, was really very extreme. But we got to see so much different countryside. And on the way back, my mother-in-law came with us. They, My wife family has connections to Iowa and Pennsylvania. So we, you know, we touched on some kind of family history, both in Pennsylvania and going through rural Iowa as well, uh, which was huh. very nice. That's great. Yeah. I was following your, uh, your photos. It was interesting to see, you know, from, you know, like these kind of vast areas of flat to, you know, where there's more kind of dense population and then the snow coming up. And mm. yeah, it was, it was fun to, to kind of follow your progress there. Unfortunately, because I was doing most of the photography live, the quality of the images were considerably less as posted than existed on my phone. So it was interesting actually comparing and contrasting what was posted. And certainly people had commented that some of the scenes were particularly grainy. Well, they also unfortunately were the scenes with the limited cellular data network oh, um, right. access as well. <laughs> so there was a strange contrast in that. But yes, it really it reinvigorated me. I've always, I mean, I loved it when I used to travel by train because I would, you know, the Bay Area is a very particular thing, as you well know. Um, but when you get out of the Bay Area, you get to see completely different, you know, people completely different. It's just, it's a different experience, really. And uh, no, we had a wonderful time. 
we were completely exhausted by the time we got back as anticipated right we did uh, because we were snowed in in uh wyoming we had to make up a day and a half well we basically did two days and a day at the end uh, to get back in, in reasonable time it was funny because the traffic was really pretty exceptional all the way through the trip there really wasn't that much bad traffic until we got back to the bay area <laughs> Of course, yeah, the densely populated Bay Area. Yeah, yeah, no, like Philadelphia, these areas, not so bad on the traffic. I mean, they have their own thing. It's the kind of eccentric, but yeah, not so bad on the traffic. And the, the two lane freeways that traverse this country are, I mean, the standardization associated with these things, you really start to appreciate. And yeah, it really is, it was an interesting experience and one that I think is going to take, you know, many, many months to decompress from. But certainly meeting Ron Kleiss as well was a real luxury. I mean, Ron and I have been in correspondence. Obviously, you know, his family are regularly decked out in model rail radio right. gear. It was wonderful <laughs> to actually meet Ron on location and to, to wander around a, a show with him and have a, a chat. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm interested in seeing what he does with the uh, laser because I think certainly we talked a lot. Obviously, I mean, Jimmy Simmons' work in this area is... is trailblazing associated oh, yeah. with getting lasers and then doing the brickwork and the cobblestones and all this kind of stuff but i think now increasingly and i commented actually i'm, I'm across from some war game scenery that was laser cut and flat packed in poland just amazingly detailed stuff i spent an evening online looking for particular urban war game terrain and that's being done in poland it's amazing that there's no indigenous stuff being done here of a similar quality although slowly but surely i think these things are coming together but yeah i'm really interested in seeing what ron does with laser in fact i think the use of lasers in this hobby completely changes the possibilities associated with the kinds of prototypes that people model and these kind of things it's only in this trip i do appreciate the historical legacy of various prototypes in this country but there's just so much nice countryside to model that yeah always really interested and now Having ticked off a few more states, having been through a few more, you know, cities and these kind of things, I'm feeling, uh, I don't know, it's, it's difficult to explain, particularly associated with the breadth of guests that we have calling into Model Rail Radio. But now I have a very intimate sense of, you know, what Charleston, West Virginia is like and, you know, all these kind of cities now, Des Moines, all these cities that I've been to. I can, in my mind's eye, have a sense of them. Ah, one thing I wanted to say. So the... NMRA National is going to be held in Kansas City in maybe next year or maybe the year after. Kansas City is an amazing, I mean, it's a hub of railroading. Huh. And um, Joe's Barbecue, I've got to say, Joe's <laughs> Kansas City Barbecue, absolutely, utterly, unbelievably delicious. And it's the subtle flavors that made it good. I'm, I'm channeling Dave Freire here. But it's the subtle flavors that made it good. And various, like, citrus flavors and just unexpected stuff i mean you eat barbecue you eat barbecue you kind of get used to it but this was a different nuance of barbecue and my wife said that um the food critic anthony bourdain had rated joe's very highly having been there amazingly good quality barbecue and i've already warned dave falkenberg and others that they're going to have to make a definite pit stop at joe's at some stage but <laughs> i mean kansas city is a beautiful for for industry and for railroads, Kansas City is an amazing prototype. I'm surprised more people aren't modeling it. But I know that there are a lot of modelers in Kansas City, and I know that there are a lot of 
participants of Model Rail Radio that have been through Kansas City at one time or another. So it was great to have a chance to go through all, unfortunately, too brief, but at least a chance to get a sense of the city, get a sense of the environment and the vast quantities of trains that were coming through. Beautiful, beautiful opportunity to to see a place. And I'm I'm anticipating, I, it might even be next year, actually, that Kansas City is on the, the National. Um, huh. I'm not sure if I'll be able to take the time off work, but uh, yeah, great location, and I'm really interested to hear from folks that have a chance to go next year. Very do you, cool. you do you occasionally, you hit up the East Coast within the past year, haven't you? You, you do a bit of traveling occasionally. Yeah, a bit. I, I don't really, I, I jump from coast to coast, basically. Mm-hmm. My, my wife's family lives in Maryland. Mm. And so we've cruised around there and, and I've had, I have family in Virginia mm-hmm. and we've done that trip where we drove down from Maryland down to Virginia to see my relatives and then back up. And, uh, we had some family friends that live down that way. And it is a different, you get these different patches of, uh, even how people interact with their environment. Um, when we were in Virginia <laughs> at one point, it was getting kind of cold and it's getting toward nighttime and, they started piling up all this wood and old chairs <laughs> and things. And it's like, what are you guys doing? It's like, oh, we're going to do a bonfire later. And it's like a bonfire. And it says, yeah. And so they just they dump it with like some kind of, uh, you know, uh, like gasoline or something. And they just lit this whole pile of wood on fire. Yeah. And it was a huge fire. It was, it was beautiful, but you would never even consider doing that in this area, you know? No way. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, there's uh, multiple opportunities for uh, different kinds of scenes and things depending on where you are in the U.S. And I've noticed that in uh, in my travelings via uh, the magic of Google mm. uh, in Japan as well, where you know I'm thinking these little densely populated kind of mixes of of wood homes and and modern homes and and things of that nature, but then I found these vast expanses of just fields with roads running through them oh, with yeah. very little population as well. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a big mix depending on where, where you are and what you're choosing the model. Certainly. Certainly. Well, Malcolm, it looks like it's going to be a short show today. We haven't had as many callers as I anticipated, but the times and things are going to start changing. I'm going to move more to uh, evening recording times, which I think work out a lot better for folks on the East coast and also right. potentially other callers. So this is the last of the transitional shows. And, yeah, hopefully we'll get a better frequency. I'll get the shows edited and out more. Mm, work seems to be a little bit civilized, so we'll see how it puts itself together. But obviously next year it looks like we'll be hitting show 150 quite comfortably. And I've got to anticipate doing something for that. The East Coast trip is still on the cards, but I'm, you know, working out where the show will actually fall and certainly doing it in this part of the world is perfectly fine too. I think um, I'll send my wife to a spa for three or four days. and <laughs> Right, keep she, her out she, of the mix this time. <laughs> she won't have to deal with the, the wide variety of strange gentlemen coming through and uh, <laughs> these kind of things. So, yeah, I'm sure there's ways that we can uh, make it slightly more civilized. And, um, yeah, it's always interesting, these, you know, big number shows, because a lot of Model Rail Radio is just, you know, editing and... Obviously, things like the Facebook page just maintain themselves now. I mean, it's amazing the community that's gathered together. But also, there are a number of new podcasts that are coming out now in Model Rail Rating and a number of podcasts that are reinvigorating. I saw the Roundhouse is back and Tom Combo is offering, uh, I think he's recorded one recently. So 
both old podcasts returning and uh, new podcasts coming up. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of interesting activity going on with the, the Model Rail podcasting space currently. But it's always a pleasure to record Model Rail Radio, and it's great to have the opportunity to, to travel the US and hopefully maybe in a civilised time frame actually meet people as well. So I want to send a shout-out to Ron Kleiss in particular. It was great to meet him on location. And, uh, yeah, thanks to the folks for, for calling in today as well. John Garrity is always a wealth of information. It's funny, when John came on the call, he said, I don't think I've got a lot to talk about this recording. And I thought, <laughs> that clearly is not going to be the case. Let's <laughs> get the information out of him. Supple. Anyway, a short show for folks. And uh, Malcolm, you wanted to say something? or? Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, I actually have a gift for you oh. uh, that I made. This is uh, a little diorama piece. And at some oh. point, we have to coordinate so I can drive down Definitely. there and, and uh, get it to I've you. I've got your coffee mug as well that we've had oh, for... <laughs> I forgot about that thing. Speaking of show 100, <laughs> yeah, the coffee mug. It's, I'm hoping it's still there, actually. Every time I do the dishes and I put the cups up, I always look at Malcolm's coffee mug and think... We will have to get this back to him at some point. <laughs> yeah, we definitely need to work that out, Malcolm. So maybe we'll meet somewhere equidistant. Or um, have, have you been to the new Netflix campus? No, no, I haven't. Well, that might be something to do then, if you can get there down here in a time frame. I'm more than happy to uh, give you a tour. I mean, you are a Netflix celebrity, after all. So. Oh, yeah, I am, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks to uh, the folks for calling in today, and thanks to the folks for listening in. Good afternoon. Take care, Tom. Bye, Tom.